Blog Talk Radio. And welcome back, everybody, to the King Jordan Radio Show. The show, the date is August 9, 2018. We are in Season 6, Episode 11. Well, it's been about 15 months uh, since we had this guest back. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the world-renowned uh, Los Angeles defense attorney, um, most known for acquitting the late, great Michael Jackson. Let's bring in my friend Tom Mesero. Good evening, Tom. Uh, how you been here? Um, I've been, everything? I've been fine, Jordan. Thank you for having me on the show. It's always an honor and privilege, and uh, great to be back. No question, and uh, you uh, definitely had a uh, big year, to say the least. And uh, let's get right into uh, Bill Cosby. Uh, what made you uh, link up with Bill Cosby in terms of what what ultimately persuaded uh, you to decide to do this? Well, I was contacted by a number of people uh, for a long time about the case. Um, you know, I'm a criminal defense lawyer, and I, uh, uh, I'm right. more than willing to fight odds and more than willing to fight to see that justice is done. Unfortunately, justice was not done in the case. Uh, it was the most unfair trial I've ever been part of. Uh, you know, <clears throat> when, when it looks like someone's in trouble, uh, a lot of people play it safe. I had people advising me, you know, you won – the Michael Jackson case, you've won a lot of big white collar cases in federal court. You won a lot of homicide cases, particularly in the deep South. Don't get involved. And I said to myself, you know, I believe in what I do. I believe this man is not being treated fairly. And uh, I agreed to uh, do the retrial. Um, I'm happy I did it. Uh, I think he did, did not get a fair trial at all. I'm very upset about it and would help him any way I could. I think he's a very, very nice man who got mistreated, um, who walked into a courtroom where everybody had a political motive to see him get destroyed. And, you know, it reminded me of the Michael Jackson case. You know, people forget how the deck was stacked against him internationally in terms of the media, in terms of the political ambitions of the prosecution team, in terms of the business ambitions of the media. And I saw a lot of versions of that in the Cosby case. And the man did not get due process. He didn't get fundamental fairness, which our Constitution, you know, promises people. Uh, I am absolutely convinced these convictions will be reversed on appeal. In fact, I had an appellate specialist on the team with me, Becky James, who used to have the appellate section for the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles. And she's never seen so many valid appellate issues in her career in one trial. So, unfortunately, it's a very difficult situation for him to be in. He shouldn't be in it. Um, I will defend him till the end. I don't care what public opinion says. I don't care what the media says. Um, You know, I like honorable journalists. I detest cheap tabloid types like you have today. 
and the cheap tabloid types were all over the place in the Cosby case, like they were in the Jackson case. You know, celebrity has a a cost associated with it. You become a target for everybody. And Bill Cosby was a political target for multiple people. And I don't agree with the result, and I don't agree with the way he was treated. Let me ask you a question. Was there ever a plea deal on the table? Bill Cosby wouldn't have, wouldn't have pled to a misdemeanor. He always maintained that, you know, he was innocent, that he never intentionally or willingly committed a crime on anybody, uh, never did anything against anyone's consent. Um, you know, they went back 30 years to try and find accusers who had no business testifying in the trial anyway. Um and it was just what uh, you're seeing in the era of Me Too, which, by the way, yeah. uh, a lot of good is associated with the Me Too movement to the extent sure. we combat, you know, sexual harassment, uh, sexual victimization of women, uh, taking advantage of women who are in a position of weakness. To the extent we combat that, I am totally for it. And I think a lot of good will come out of the Me Too movement. But like any other movement, there are going to be excesses, and there are going to be people who, in my opinion, you know, are not uh, the kinds of victims they're now portraying they are 30 years later. So, you know, I see good and bad in most things, uh, and I see a tremendous amount of good already in the Me Too movement, but I see some bad as well. Um, you know, when people come out 30 years later and start claiming they were victimized, you know, the defense can't investigate these claims. You can't go back 30 years and find witnesses. You can't find fresh evidence. You can't find lots of things. And the idea that a judge would let this kind of testimony into a trial uh, the way the judge did in the Bill Cosby case is, to me, outrageous. You know, in the first trial of Bill Cosby, which I wasn't associated with, he let in one other woman to testify uh, as a what, a what we call a pattern witness, testifying that Bill Cosby had engaged in a pattern of, uh, of improper conduct. In the second trial, he upped the one witness to five more witnesses. So five women, right. in addition to the accuser, testified. He wouldn't give any reasons why he did it. Uh, it's obvious why he did it. He wanted a conviction for political reasons. That's what I believe. <clears throat> Do you, this guy, uh, Kevin Steele, um... Is it true that he had an ad campaign saying words to the effect, if you vote for me, we'll go, we'll go uh, after Cosby, unlike the previous guy? Uh, was that yeah. a commercial? Let me, let me give you some background. First of all, when the accuser in the Cosby case first went to the DA, <clears throat> the DA examined the evidence and rejected the case. The DA claimed mm. that there were too many inconsistencies in the evidence. Now, the accuser believed there were no significant inconsistencies in anything she had said, but the DA rejected the case. He not only rejected the case, he told Bill Cosby that, and his lawyers that he was not going to be prosecuted, and for that reason he had no Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. And based on that right. agreement and based on the DA's representations, he was advised to take a civil deposition. Now, that DA had won a very nasty battle for DA against a particular opponent. That particular opponent then became the current Superior Court judge who became the trial judge in the Cosby trial. So this is a nasty 
defeat by the person who becomes the current judge, uh, that DA then loses his, his next race to a friend of the judge, okay? Wow. He loses the race. The new DA, Mr. Steele, then says, I don't care what he agreed to. I'm going to prosecute him. It should have been in writing. Words to that effect. The defense has a hearing in front of the current judge, who is the prior DA's old opponent. The prior DA comes in to testify, says under oath, I made an agreement. The judge, his old political opponent, says, I don't think he's reliable. We'll go forward, just for starters. Now, the case was not filed in time. There's what is called a statute of limitations, which means you have to file a case in a particular period of time. We had all the evidence to show the case was not timely filed. The judge would not have a hearing on the evidence and would not rule on the evidence. He, even though this is what we call a jurisdictional question, you don't have jurisdiction to even do a trial if it wasn't timely filed. The judge refused to have a hearing on the issue. The judge refused to rule on the issue. The judge refused to give any reasons why it was going forward. He simply said the jury can consider it. We presented the evidence. He wouldn't allow us to have a summary witness to summarize the evidence like he allowed the prosecution to do. He said he was going to let the jury handle it. He put it in a jury instruction and didn't send it into the jury room. So the jury came back, you know, faster than they ever could have if they really looked at the evidence. So that's going to be an issue on appeal. Uh, in addition to that, there's the issue of letting five other women come in and testify when in the first trial he only let one. He wouldn't give any reasons for that either. The reason is obvious. He wanted a conviction, and he and the DA were buddies. Um, that happened. Then he allowed testimony true? in from the depth. Pardon me? Is it true that the judge's wife had um, had some kind of uh, deal with Me Too, like she uh, was involved with something along the lines of uh, sexual harassment? The judge's wife is a highly respected counselor of victims of sexual abuse. She's highly respected. She's written articles on the subject. She had arranged a contribution to a group that had planned a protest out in front of the courthouse against the Cosby defense. So we asked so the judge by be motion. We asked a reason the judge enough to, to recuse? Down. Well, that should be enough to recuse. His relationship with the DA and his relationship with the prior DA should have also been a reason to recuse himself. He refused to recuse himself. So wow. the case went uh, forward. He consistently yeah. cut off defense cross-examination. He would allow prosecution cross-examination. And by the way, during jury selection, one removed juror contacted us and said that another juror had said he's guilty and deliberations won't be long. There was a hearing on the issue. The juror who made the complaint came in and testified under oath to what she heard, and he wouldn't remove that juror. Wow. Have you in ever been in a situation and, like that or saw anything like seen, that? I've never seen anything this bad. When you pile up all the, all the evidence of injustice, all the evidence of an unfair trial, all the evidence of lack of due process, I've never seen anything like it. He would consistently cut off the defense. Um, 
we had witnesses we wanted to call we thought could be very important. He wouldn't let us call them. Uh, and in closing argument, in, in law, there's what is called a, uh, a rule against personal vouching. A prosecutor is not allowed to get up in front of the jury and make it personal, like they personally investigated the evidence or like they personally believe the defendant's guilty. Right. You're not allowed to personally vouch. They personally vouched all over the place. I kept objecting. And the judge would not uh, grant a mistrial for any of the things I just told you about. And by the way, when you talk about the five other women who were allowed to come in, uh, many uh-huh. of them talking about things that happened almost 30 years ago or 30 years ago. One of them screamed right. in the middle of the trial uh, words to the effect, he's a, he's a, uh, a serial rapist. And, and when she did that, we objected. The judge wouldn't grant a mistrial. Another one yelled out words to the effect, you know what you did to me. Um, also, in front of the jury? For a mistrial. Yes. Judge would mm-hmm. not grant a mistrial. This is the most absurd trial I've ever been part of in my long career. And, and I really mean that. You know, you may not like Mr. Cosby or you may like him, but regardless right. of what you feel about him, He's, yes, he's entitled to a fair trial, and he didn't get one. Yeah, and uh, you have no doubt about that, right? I have no doubt about it. I was right there. I was right there. I mean, add up all the things I just said, and that's not all of them. The judge allowed no. testimony on drug drug use, for which there was no basis. Um, it, it was really, really a, a disaster for due process and a disaster for fairness. And I like to speak about how America has the the best justice system in the world, and I believe it does. But things like this uh, should never happen. This kind of politically driven, politically inspired case should never have have happened. What do you say to the person that has one straight idea about Bill Cosby that reads into the news? uh, They see this many accusers, et cetera, et cetera. And they say, where well, there's smoke, there must be some fire. What do you say to that? Well, well, that's not the American justice system. What I'm saying is, if you like Bill Cosby or don't like Bill Cosby, if you reach conclusions that are positive or negative about him, that's beside the point. He's an American citizen. Right. He has a right to a fair trial, like everybody else. He didn't get one. Get a fair trial. And no. uh, a lot of lawyers that came here, uh, that had no interest in Bill Cosby uh, actually said that um, he'll definitely get an appeal. Um, and uh, Danny Savala said uh, it was unjust to quote him. Uh, so a lot of people are quite upset. And uh, uh, Mr. Cosby, um, when the verdict was reached, I guess uh, it was reported that he took a little tantrum to uh, the prosecutor when he said uh, maybe uh, he has a plane, he has means to leave. Uh, can you share what happened, uh, the, the real version well, the of what happened? Well, the prosecutor, prosecutor was trying to get him locked up right away. Remember, he's 81 years old and blind. He has no right. prior convictions of any kind. Throughout his Nothing. life, he's been enormously generous to causes all around the country. He has contributed a ton of money to schools, to paying for people's educations, to paying for unfortunate 
uh, people in, in situations that are very, very dire where nobody else will help them. He's paid people's bills. He's bailed out schools. He's done so much good. He's donated somewhere between 100 and $200 million in his career to help society and to help schools and to help individuals who are either underprivileged or suffering through difficult situations. So you take someone like that and you suddenly convict him at the age, I think he was almost 81 when he was convicted. And then you try right. and say he may flee in a plane when he doesn't even own a plane. You know, Mr. Cosby, right. in my opinion, you know, understandably had had it. So he exploded. Remember, this is the DA who ran on a political platform that if elected, he would go after Mr. Cosby. This is the DA who threw out the agreement the prior DA had entered into, which he admitted he'd entered into and testified under oath under oath that he entered into. This is the DA who made a political spectacle out of this to, to feather his own nest and who, in my opinion, is in bed with the judge, were enemies of the prior DA. Uh, as I said before, the current judge had run against the prior DA. It was a bitter campaign. The current judge lost. Then the current judge uh, had to decide if the prior DA who beat him was credible when he said, I made an agreement not to prosecute him, and held that he wasn't credible. To me, that just smacks of politics and conflicts of interest. Um, so Mr. Cosby understandably had had it with the current DA and prosecutor, and he did uh, he did speak his mind. Oh, so I want to play you uh, what the juror said, and uh, let's take a listen to a juror, and then I want to get your opinion after this. There's not a doubt in his mind. Juror number one says he's sure justice was reached in the Bill Cosby trial. No, I have no doubt at all. Harrison Snyder is just 22 years old. And he's never seen a single episode of The Cosby Show. I knew he was an actor. I knew that he did The Cosby Show. I never watched The Cosby Show or anything. I'm a little too young for that. Snyder told GMA it was Cosby's own words that convinced him to vote guilty. In the deposition, he stated that he gave these drugs to other women. Cosby is now confined to his five-acre estate outside Philadelphia, pending sentencing in 75 days. It's a gilded prison. The main house has seven bedrooms. There's also a guest house, and the entire property is surrounded by a stone wall for privacy. The comic legend is under court order to wear an ankle bracelet. He can only leave the grounds to see his doctor or his lawyers. We spoke to former supermodel Janice Dickinson, who testified that Cosby raped her in 1982. She's upset that Cosby wasn't sent to prison right away. Why does he get the freedom of going back to his house when every other rapist goes direct to jail? There, I've said my piece. Because of Cosby's age, he's 80, and health, there's speculation he may never serve a day in jail. Sonny Hostin is ABC's senior legal correspondent. Will Bill Cosby get 30 years in prison because that is a possibility? I don't think so. But will he spend some time in prison? I think so, and I think that's appropriate. Yes. If Cosby is sentenced to prison, he's likely to be incarcerated inside a hospital wing. Now you have not only someone who is famous, but someone who is also infirmed, elderly, legally blind. I suspect he wouldn't be held in general population. He would probably be uh, by himself. Lawyer Gloria Allred, who represents 28 Cosby accusers, 
was a presenter at Sunny's Daytime Emmy Awards. May I take a point of personal privilege to say, Bill Cosby, guilty, guilty, guilty. Okay, Tom, uh, what do you make of what do you what you just heard uh, with the uh with the uh, juror with uh, uh Gloria Allred? What's your take on what you well, just heard? Well, I I'm not here to disparage anyone. People are entitled to their opinion and I'm entitled to mine. And my Absolutely. point is that whatever you think of Mr. Cosby, whether it's good or bad, uh he had a right to a fair trial under the law. He didn't get one. He deserves a fair hearing like any other American. This is a case where politics drove the trial. Politics right. drove the judge's rulings. Politics drove the case. The case had been rejected by that office. But for political reasons, the case was revisited, even though a public prosecutor had reached an agreement not to prosecute him. The whole thing smells. It's a real, you know, it's a real bruise on the American justice system. So I'm not here to, people are entitled to their opinion. I'm not here right. to disparage anybody. I'm not here to attack anyone's character or intelligence or views or anything of that sort. All I'm here to do is tell you the man deserves a fair trial and he didn't get one. No question about it. And uh, they uh, say uh, September, September-ish, um, I guess he'll be back in court. Well, I'm no longer his attorney. He has a new legal team. and. Uh, the sentencing, the last I heard, was set for September 24th. Now, how does a process of appeal work in in this case, well, at least? In, in the state of Pennsylvania, you're not convicted until you're sentenced. So even though the jury oh, okay. has come back said guilty, uh, as we talk this evening, he has no conviction. You can't file oh, appeal till there's, till there's a conviction. So as soon as Mr. Cosby is sentenced, uh, I would assume his appellate lawyers will file a notice of appeal immediately. Well, uh, can you tell us about uh, Mrs. Cosby? How was she uh, to deal with uh, what was her character like? She was, she was a very wonderful person, a uh, very, very sensitive, caring person. Uh, she's had a lot of tragedy in her life, as you know, not long before the trial, one of her beloved children died. Uh, years ago, she had her beloved son murdered in Los Angeles. She's had wow. a lot of ups and downs in her life, but she's a very strong person, very spiritual person, very nice person. And she shouldn't wow. have to be going through what she's going through. Wow. And, uh, yeah, it's just they lost two kids, right? Uh, you're saying? Yeah. From back in the '90s, I guess. And uh, wow. Okay, I wanted to get your take on the Harvey Weinstein case. Uh, I don't know how much you know about it, but it's all over, obviously. Uh, there's 80 accusers. There's, I guess, three principal accusers. Um, it's in New York. Uh, his lawyer uh, 
think it went on. Let's start with his attorney, Benjamin Bradford. Can you tell the audience a little about uh, about Benjamin Bradford and your opinion on him as a lawyer? Well, I've never I've never met him. He has an excellent reputation in New York City. Oh. He's become sort of the person to go to in New York. Uh, has done a lot of trials in federal and state court. Got a lot of good results. I don't know him personally, but his reputation is outstanding. Look, I, I've never met Harvey Weinstein. Uh, I don't know mm-hmm. what he did or didn't do. But again, he deserves a fair trial. Okay? And I fear that he cannot get one in the kind of environment we're operating in. And that's just wrong. You know, it's easy when you see someone vilified in the press or attacked in the media to say where they're guilty. They're guilty. Who cares if they get a fair trial? That's easy to say at a distance until you or your loved one gets charged. And when you or your loved one gets charged, you want a fair trial. Okay? And you can't, you know, American citizens can't just say, who cares if that person gets a fair trial because they're guilty, and then suddenly expect fair hearing when, when they or their loved ones get charged, rightly or wrongly. Okay? You know, I mean, Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is injustice everywhere. He was absolutely correct. You can't just pick and choose justice. Uh, if you allow it to go on somewhere else, it likely will hit you in your doorstep. So my point about someone like Harvey Weinstein is that, you know, regardless of how the media is treating him, uh, you should demand that he get a fair trial and a fair hearing. Look how the media treated Michael Jackson. It was no, absolutely uh, uh, it was atrocious. I think that was worse I mean, than the anybody that you uh, represented, right? Well, people pronounced him guilty all over the world before the trial. And even during the week of jury deliberation, the networks were putting on his, the jail cell they said he was going to go into uh, all day. I mean, I would, uh, yeah, I would, that was a Dan Abrams special. Yeah, they do. Well, I think, I think Fox was doing it too. Uh, They were showing the jail cell where he was likely to be. They were talking about the schedule he would adhere to in jail, the food he would eat, what he would wear, what visiting hours would be like, would he be able to read. I mean, you know, every effort imaginable was made to deny him a fair trial and to unfairly influence the jury. Um, You know, I remember after it, I had lunch with Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown, and his uh, lovely family. And it was he in a found uh, Michael Jackson, right? Pardon me. He he discovered didn't he discover Michael Jackson? Barry well Barry the Gordy? Jacksons the Jacksons uh, he he did you know the, the Jackson family did you know audition in front of him and he saw the talent that was there uh, I think in all of them especially Michael but he he said to me how did you control this whole thing I said uh, you know I wish I could look at you and say I'm a genius I know how I did it I really don't know. Uh, I put a lot of it in God's hands, you know, as I always do. And he said to me, you know, you may have cost the worldwide media a couple of billion dollars when you acquitted them. Really? You know, it's not right. It's not right when the justice system becomes hostage to big business interests like the media. It's not right. Um, No question about it. As I said, I think we have the best justice system in the world, but we've got to be very careful that big money and media interests and, you know, the tabloids don't pervert it and corrupt it the way they would like to do because they want what they want. 
not because it's right or wrong. They want it for reasons of business, for revenue, for ratings, that kind of thing. And as I've said many times, I remember I remember when the last not guilty came down in the Michael Jackson courtroom. It was the 14th not guilty, 10 felonies, 4 misdemeanors. I remember hugging Michael and looking at the crowd, and all the media people looked depressed, dejected. You know, they, they were upset. Yeah, you Shut. know. They were they, the big story was about to end for them, and right. they wanted what they wanted. So we have to be very careful that political interests, business interests, media interests, financial interests do not corrupt our justice system. And whenever a celebrity goes on trial, the potential for some form of that corruption is there. Absolutely, I did want to talk about MJ, but I. Uh... Did want to get your take uh, about Trayvon Martin? So there is a new documentary. Uh, let me play the trailer, and then I want to get your take on the uh, Mr. Zimmerman. Take a listen to this. I need to file a missing person report for my son. Hey, what's his name? Trayvon Martin. Central Police Department. Hey, there's a real suspicious guy. These always get away. There's someone how many more kids will we wait for them to kill? My tears collected like raindrops on a windowsill. This kid was profiled, pursued, and shot in the heart. George and Ming claim self-defense. Standing his ground. It just polarized the country. We were overcome with fear and anger. Trayvon became the face of our community. We had to go to war for him. Rest in power. Rest in paradise To all the babies too young to have had to pay the price You choose to grieve or to fight It took my son being shot down to make me stand up Rest in power, rest in paradise You have become a symbol in the spirit life So that is on Monday night Part 3 uh, on BET, 10 Eastern, uh, 9 Central. But, uh, Tom, uh, you followed that trial. Uh, what was your takeaway of the Zimmerman-Trayvon-Martin uh, trial? Well, I didn't see the whole trial, but uh, I was horrified by the verdict. Um, this was an innocent young man doing nothing wrong, didn't have a weapon, right. Uh, wasn't looking for trouble, walking alone to his uncle's house, as I recall, with he'd been to, a, I think, a 7-Eleven and had a, brought a drink and something to eat, uh, bothering nobody. And I was horrified by the verdict. I thought the defense did an excellent job. They did what they were asked to do. You know, remember, a defense yes. lawyer is ethically and professionally obligated to fight for their clients. And No matter what the situation is, right? doesn't work properly unless everybody does their job. The judge, the prosecutor, the defense lawyer, the jurors, the bailiffs, the witnesses, everybody has to do their ethical and professional job. So I'm not blaming the defense lawyers at all. They did a terrific job. But I think uh, the verdict was a nightmare. I mean, this young man was, was targeted because of his, his in my opinion, uh, based right. on the evidence I heard, uh, I thought he was targeted because of his race. That's what it looked like to me. Um, that's just my opinion. But again, I didn't see the whole trial either. I don't want to act like I saw everything. Um, 
Now, I know that uh, Mr. Zimmerman apparently had a lot of bruises on his face. I guess there was an altercation. But I think the question is, who was responsible for the altercation? Who provoked it? As I recall, there were the police, I think, told Mr. Zimmerman to back off, as I recall. Um, But again, I don't know all the evidence. I don't know all the evidence. I know Mr. Zimmerman has his take on it. I think he I think he said he was attacked himself. I wasn't there. I don't know what happened. I didn't see the whole trial, but based on the evidence I was aware of, I was horrified by the verdict. Do you think there is an issue with cops and young black men? Of course. I think throughout my entire lifetime, uh, there has been an issue of people being devalued because of their race people being consciously or unconsciously devalued. Uh, Sometimes people think they're fair and and they have no racial animus, and subconsciously they do. And sometimes people uh, intentionally devalue others, and sometimes unintentionally they do it. So uh, we tend to operate as human beings on stereotypes that have been stuffed into us, uh, stereotypes that are a result of whatever experiences we've had, um, and I think we all have to struggle on a daily basis to ensure that we don't treat anyone else with less value and less dignity than we want to be treated ourselves. In the Eric Gardner case here in New York, uh, where I am, um, that camera footage, you know, looked very overwhelming that at least some justice of a trial should have happened, and here we are, what is it, about five years later, and no trial, uh, nothing happened to the uh, uh, alleged officer that did that hurt him. What's your take on the Eric Gardner situation? That just horrified me. Here was a father of, I believe, five children, I think, who yes. was doing nothing more than selling, apparently, some illegal cigarettes on a street Blue corner, cigarettes. or wasn't it? wasn't a threat to anybody, didn't run away, they do didn't all strike over. anything. To me, it, it looked like, uh, uh, I mean, I, I was horrified by it. Uh, it looked like murder to me, but I, again, I wasn't there. I know that I saw that tape. It looked to me like he was not resisting. He was not running. He was not threatening anyone. Father of five children doing nothing but sell cigarettes. I was horrified by the uh you know, the way that went down. My understanding is uh, there's been no discipline to any of the police officers of any kind. Am I correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, no discipline. In fact, uh, last I heard, the uh, alleged officer uh, that did this crime is doing death duty still. And uh, uh, the thing he has to go through is, uh, you know, I guess watching himself. Uh, through the uh, certain areas, I mean, he's not a, a friendly face in most parts of uh, New York, to say the least. Uh, unless I guess he's with the cops, but uh, not not he's not in the greatest shoes. Uh, my point is, but uh, no justice, uh, nothing uh, for him. And the it bothers you. He's screaming, uh, "I can't breathe." And it, it's very uh, loud, and you can hear it uh, clearly. 
even if you're hard of hearing and uh, the way he's being attacked from what I'm watching is uh, I just, if it wasn't a cop, if it was just another civilian, I think there's no question there would be a uh, some kind of trial or something. Do you agree? Absolutely, I agree. I mean, it just, again, I, I only know that section of tape. I've never talked to these officers. I don't know what their take is, but I can't imagine how there could have been no, you know, dire consequences from behaving like that. Again, a father of five children doing nothing yes. but sell cigarettes, a threat to right. nobody. He doesn't run anywhere. He doesn't flee. He doesn't have a weapon. He doesn't strike anybody. He tells tells them he can't breathe. What do they think is going on? I mean, based on what I saw, it's a, it's, I'm just horrified there have been no consequences other than a family destroyed and five little kids without a father. Yes, yes, uh, 45 years old, uh, gone way too soon. And uh, speaking of gone uh, way too soon, Michael Jackson, uh, due to a couple months back, uh, it was officially nine years. Uh, let me play this clip, how it all unfolded, and we'll talk about, a little bit about MJ after this. Anderson Cooper, 360, weeknights at 8 and 10 on CNN. The desperate 911 call came from inside Michael Jackson's rented mansion. It was just before 12.30 p.m., June 25, 2009, in Los Angeles. He's pumping, he's pumping his chest, but he's not responding to anything, sir. The king of pop's heart had stopped. He was unconscious. His personal physician, Dr. Conrad Murray, who can be heard in the background on the call, was attempting CPR. Did anybody witness what happened? Uh, no, just the doctor, sir. The doctor's been the only one here. Hours later, his family broke the news to the world. The legendary king of pop, Michael Jackson, passed away. Immediately, the investigation focuses on Dr. Murray, the cardiologist hired to care for the pop star during his upcoming concert tour. In July 2009, a major bombshell. A source tells CNN Dr. Murray gave Michael Jackson the powerful sedative propofol within 24 hours of his death. Propofol is usually administered through an IV drip and produces such a comatose state, it isn't supposed to be used outside a hospital setting. God in, my heart. in August, Dr. Murray makes his first public comment since his star patient's death. I have done all I could do. I told the truth, and I have faith the truth will prevail. According to the police affidavit, Conrad Murray told detectives he'd been treating Michael Jackson for insomnia for weeks. He said he'd tried lots of other drugs, but that the pop star demanded propofol. On the day he died, Conrad Murray said he gave Jackson 25 milligrams of it at 10.40 in the morning. 911 was called less than two hours after that. Michael Jackson's death is officially ruled a homicide. In February 2010, Dr. Conrad Murray is charged with involuntary manslaughter. He pleads not guilty. Dr. Murray did not cause the death of Michael Jackson. That would be up to a jury to decide. In September 2011, more than two years after Michael Jackson's death, Conrad Murray goes to trial. Jackson's former head of logistics testifies Murray was hiding vials at Jackson's home before paramedics arrived. He reached over and grabbed a handful of vials, and then he reached out to me and said, here, put these in a bag. 
Murray's own iPhone recording of Jackson from May 10, 2009, was played in court. Jackson sounds wasted and is slurring his words. Listen. I love him. And I love him because I didn't have a childhood. I had no childhood. I feel their pain. I feel their hurt. Dr. Murray's interview with detectives is also played for the jury. I needed to go to the bathroom. Then I came back to his bedside and on November 7, 2011, Dr. Conrad Murray is found guilty of involuntary manslaughter and sentenced to four years in prison. But it doesn't end there. Michael Jackson's mother and children are bringing a wrongful death lawsuit against AEG, the concert promoter for Jackson's doomed comeback tour. Katherine Jackson says AEG is to blame for the loss of her son. The whole case may hinge on an email written just 11 days before Michael Jackson's death. It could be a smoking gun. In the email, AEG's CEO tells the show's director to remind Dr. Murray what is expected of him and that AEG is paying his salary. Jackson's family believes AEG pressured Murray, even threatened his $150,000 a month job as the singer's personal physician. All so Michael Jackson could rehearse despite his fragile health. AEG denies this, saying it was Jackson who chose and handled Murray. Michael Jackson died just two weeks before his tour was set to open in London. Randy Kay, CNN, Atlanta. So, Tom, when you hear this and you think about Michael Jackson, uh, you acquitted him, of course, in the uh, one of the most famous trials of all time. Uh, what comes to mind? Well, I've, I've always said, uh, and I'll keep saying, he was one of the nicest clients I've ever had. He was a very, very kind, sensitive, decent person, very cooperative, very respectful to work with, um, bewildered that he was in that situation, constantly uh, said he was innocent of, of these charges, couldn't believe anybody had taken it this far. Um I don't think he ever really recovered from that lengthy trial. The trial was, itself was five months. Uh, you had the buildup before the trial that was difficult. Uh, I'm not surprised that he was on sleeping medication or antidepressant medication. That's quite common for people who mm-hmm. are facing, you know, the possibility of years or even the rest of their life in prison if they're convicted. Uh, it, it's quite normal to take medication for stress, for sleep problems, for depression problems. Absolutely. I, I, I didn't know what propofol was till he no, died. A lot of us didn't. Uh, and um, I was horrified the more I learned about what this is, is appropriately used for and what it's dang, very dangerous if not used for. I mean, this, this was to me that anybody was giving him propofol to sleep. Um. And, you know, it's just uh, another example of how celebrity can make one a target and how celebrity, you know, while it brings many benefits in life, can bring tremendous burdens and can even be fatal. I mean, Elvis Presley, uh, Marilyn Monroe, Michael Jackson, these are all people who should have been on top of the world and lived long lives who all ended up leaving, leading very um, – 
short lives, relatively speaking, um, because of the way they were treated. They were treated in ways that other people wouldn't have been. I mean, if I went to a doctor with a sleep problem, no doctor's going to give me propofol. So why were they doing this to him? I mean, I know Dr. Murray claims he was trying to wean him off it and trying to be helpful. And um, right. I think, you know, from what the from the evidence I saw, and again, I wasn't in the courtroom, the fact that gallons of this stuff were being delivered to Dr. Murray's girlfriend's home, the fact that uh, there was no anesthesiologist present, and there should be, because they're the ones, as I understand it, most capable of, of properly using propofol. Um, there was no heart monitoring equipment uh, as required. I mean, there were so many suspicious circumstances that come to mind, you know, based on what I know about the trial. Um, it's just another tragedy where a celebrity seems to be treated differently than anybody else. But, uh, you said life. you said many times that you don't believe Dr. Murray maliciously set out to kill Michael. Uh, is that correct? Yes. I, I, I don't think he intended to kill him. I don't think there was any benefit to him if Michael died. In fact, it was quite the opposite. Uh, right. You know, I don't think he intended it. I don't think he wanted it. But I do think he was negligent in the way he handled Michael Jackson, and I think the verdict was appropriate. And uh, just going for that one count, as the uh, uh, the uh, prosecution did, you thought that was the smart move all along, right? You know, based on what I knew, I think if they had overcharged it, it might have hurt their credibility. They might have actually helped the defense if they had overcharged the case. Um, uh, that wouldn't have been appropriate. And I think they, by charging him in a way they truly believe was appropriate, I think they helped their credibility and helped ensure a conviction. Yeah, and uh, and uh, you found out about his death. You, I believe you told me you were at a coming out of a trial, and I believe you told me Randy informed you. Is that how, is that how it went? Well, I was uh, I was in the middle of a very high profile white collar jury trial in federal court in Los Angeles. I was defending the highest grossing real estate agent in the country who was indicted on 21 counts of, uh, of mortgage fraud. They charged wow. him with bank fraud, loan fraud, conspiracy, that kind of thing, coming out of the 2008 collapse. And I was coming out of the courthouse one day and Randy's girlfriend, Tanya, came up to me and said, Michael, and I just, I really didn't believe her. That was my first thought. Because there had always been so many wild rumors about Michael Jackson throughout his life. I was hoping it was just another rumor. I called my office and uh, my voicemail was full with international journalists, you know, people calling me from all around the world wanting comments. And at that point, I suspected this was more than just a, a silly rumor. This probably was fact. And I just got very, very depressed over it. He was he was gone way too soon. Very, very nice man, very kind person who really wanted to change the world in a positive way, uh, who really understood the gifts he'd been given by God um, and wanted to give back. Um, and he really did heal the world in many ways. Um, 
He uh, he epitomized kindness. He epitomized generosity. He epitomized empathy for disadvantaged people, for children who came out of abusive homes, for inner city kids. Uh, he donated a fortune to help disabled people with their medical bills. He loved animals. He loved peace. Uh, he used his gifts to try and make a big difference, and he did. Now, uh, of course, uh, you represented him, and one of your witnesses, strong witnesses, was Wade Robson. And I came across, he did an interview earlier in the summer uh, with Inside Editions' uh, Jim Murray. So I don't think you ever heard this. Uh, let me uh, see if I could find it. Uh, but in the meantime, as I'm looking for that, um, the judge uh, at this point has denied him. Um, what is your take on that, that from, uh, from that standpoint? Well, yeah, I, only know, away. I only know the Wade Robson that I met with and talked to and called as a witness. The Wade Robson that I knew uh, and talked to and called as a witness was a very articulate, intelligent, personable, uh, likable person who was very adamant uh, in his belief that he had never been improperly touched by Michael, never had been molested by him. I think he used the word ridiculous or words to that effect in the trial. And so when mm -hmm. he changed his when he changed his position years later, I was just so I don't know yeah. why he did it. I don't know what he claims really happened. I wasn't in the civil case. All I know is the man I met with was such a strong witness in favor of Michael Jackson that I made him my first witness when we put on a defense case. And really? you know, when, you put on a de when you put on a defense case, you always want to start strong and end strong. You want to start with your strongest witnesses. You want to end with your strongest witnesses. I began the Jackson defense by calling Wade Robson. I ended it by calling Chris Tucker. Both of them were strong supporters of Michael Jackson, strong believers that he hadn't done anything wrong. So when Wade changed his story completely years later, I was just shocked. And there was another one uh, that came all the way from Australia, right? Brett, 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 uh, Brett, Brett something, Barnes right? Brett came Barnes, all the way right. from, Brett Barnes came all the way from Australia said that he was giving up a big job in Australia uh, by doing so, but he said, I'm not going to let this kind of thing go forward. This is absurd. He said the man never, never properly touched me at all. And the prosecution tried to say Macaulay Culkin was uh, one of Michael Jackson's victims, and he came and testified and said nothing happened, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I saw him at Michael Jackson's burial. Uh, as as I did Chris Tucker, and I remember going up to both of them and saying, I'll never forget you two. You were young men, successful, uh, you know, and you didn't, you were advised by a lot of people around you not to come to that trial, and you did anyway because you wanted to tell the truth. And I said, you know, when you're in trouble, usually you can count who your friends are and, you know, one hand, maybe. And right. you guys are on top of the world. Your agents, your managers, your lawyers were telling you not to go near the trial, and they both said, we're going there. We don't care what anybody says to us. We're going to tell the truth. And they stood up for their friend. 
Right, right. And uh, the trial, did it take, and obviously we see Michael how stressed out he looked out he looked, but you personally, uh, how much of a toll did it take on you? The Michael Jackson trial just was so exhausting. I lived for six months in Santa Maria, California, which is northern Santa Barbara County. It's about three and a half hours from where I live in Los Angeles, and for six months I lived like a like a monk, like a hermit. I was in bed 7:30, 8 o'clock every night in my condo. I didn't want anyone to see me in a bar or restaurant or hotel lobby. I feared they'd try and put me in a bad light to hurt Michael. Uh, I know a lot of lawyers in these big cases. They're entertaining and drinking and, you know, uh, making it all about themselves. I'm not the kind of person that does that. And, you know, when I came back to Los Angeles after it was over and, woke up one day and realized I actually had survived it and was back. I didn't want to get out of bed for about two weeks. <laughs> right, right. Was there any I just day wanted, that you'll... I wanted, to, that... I wanted to get up, drink my coffee, escape, read books, you know, talk to a few <laughs> friends here and there and get away from cameras, get away from media, get away from insanity, you know. And I realized... And you did something... Unusual. You didn't hold a uh, press conference. You opted to uh, stay with and comfort your client, Michael Jackson. Is that correct? Uh, you know, I felt that we belonged with Michael and his family. Uh, I didn't think it was time to just get a lot of personal press, as I could have, uh, and as I think probably anybody else would have. Uh, I skipped yes. the press conference and went to Neverland to, to be with Michael, be with his family, be with his kids. And I still think that was the proper thing to do. I think the prosecutor, Tom Snedden, gave a press conference. Uh, I didn't. I did do some interviews the next morning. I did some interviews right. the next morning on the major networks, and I was on Larry King for an hour that night. But on verdict day, I felt the place to be was with Michael and his, his loved ones. Yeah, no question about it. I do have that clip. Uh, this is Wayne Robson from a few months ago with uh, Jim Murray, courtesy of Inside Edition. He's a dancer who got his start performing as a child alongside Michael Jackson. And when the King of Pop was accused of abusing children, Wade Robson defended his friend, even testifying in court. But now, in this exclusive interview with our Jim Murray, he is changing his story. He's one of the most sought-after dancers and choreographers in the business, working with celebrities like Britney Spears. Wade Robson got his start as Michael Jackson's protege. He was just a kid back then and performed with the superstar in music videos. Now he's breaking his silence about his claims that Michael Jackson sexually abused him beginning at age seven. Every time we were together, it happened. Um, there was no night that went by that I was with him that he didn't sexually abuse me. Robson says he never told anyone what was really taking place during those frequent slumber parties with Jackson at Neverland Ranch. It started with him fondling, then it would, you know, then it moved into kissing him, kissing me on the lips like a French kiss sort of thing. And then it moved to, to, um, to oral sex. He says Jackson warned they would both go to jail if anyone found out. So for decades, Robson defended Jackson, saying he never molested anyone. It was not possible for me 
to tell the truth about what happened, what Michael Jackson did to me, until I did. Because when I was younger, I was terrified by the idea of my life falling apart, him going to jail. In 1997, I interviewed Robson for CNN along with his mother when Jackson was first accused of child molestation. Just a summer party. We just have a lot of fun. I remember specifically days, the days leading up to that interview, the conversation from Michael was, you know, they're saying that, that we did this, that, and the other, these disgusting sexual things, and we never did any of that, right? And I would just play along and say, yeah, it's crazy. We never did anything like that. In 2005, Robson appeared as a star defense witness at Jackson's trial when the singer was found not guilty of molestation charges. Robson testified under oath that Jackson never abused him. He said the same thing when he appeared on Jimmy Kimmel's show in 2003. Show me where he touched you. <laughs> no nonsense, no shenanigans. But everything changed when Robson married and had a son. He says two nervous breakdowns finally forced him to reveal to a therapist and his family the dark secret he says he'd been hiding. It was just pain and disgust and anger at the idea of that, something like that, anything like that happening to my son. He decided to file a lawsuit against the late entertainer's estate because he claims Jackson wasn't the only one who knew about the abuse. In this lawsuit, you call it a thinly veiled business to operate as a child sex abuse operation. Yeah. Is that how you see it? Yeah, absolutely. It took so many people that worked for Michael to organize the level at which children were constantly, including myself, brought to him. Robson says he understands why people may have trouble believing him after so many years of denial. As you sit here right now, is there any question in your mind that Michael Jackson molested you? Absolutely not. Today, Robson is teaching a whole new generation of performers, not only to dance, but how to face their fears. Michael was uh, an incredible singer, songwriter, dancer, performer, and he was also a child predator, a child sexual abuser. A judge threw out Robson's lawsuit saying no one other than Jackson himself had the authority to control his actions. Robson is appealing. An attorney from Jackson's estate says his claims are about money, not a search for the truth. So, Tom, yeah, as we were talking about, uh, that is a more updated version. Uh, he's going to appeal. It's a, it's a bit uh, hurtful to hear, knowing uh, that he came and he spoke to you directly, looked you in the eyes, told you absolutely nothing happened. Uh, so what's your takeaway when you hear this? Well, I, I only know the Wade Robson that I spoke to. I spoke to him before the trial. We went through, you know, was it just you and him? Claimed. Just me and him. Uh, Susan, you, my co-counsel, was there. Uh, his family was there. I talked to his mother. I talked to his sister. I called the three of them as witnesses. All of them were supporting Michael Jackson. So I only know what I was told directly by him, and what I saw him say under oath in front of a jury. And I don't believe Michael was a child molester, so there's your answer. Right, right. And uh, did when you uh, spoke to him, did you feel like uh, he was being very? Did you feel, did you feel he was being truthful with you in, in any yeah. point? Uh, 
Did he feel any differently? No, hmm. yes. As I said earlier, he's a very intelligent, very articulate, very personable, very likable, very impressive young man. And I never for one second felt he was not telling me the truth. Quite the contrary. He was very convincing, very persuasive, very strong in his opinions that Michael had never abused him. And that's why I called him as my first witness. So put yourself in my shoes. I mean, you've seen him before the trial. You've seen him in the trial. And then, as I recall, I think he gave an interview after the trial. I think for E-Entertainment or one of the networks that I saw. So you can imagine, you know, what I think. Yeah, I mean, this is not just like, uh, you know, one little dig at his hand. Uh, it is the very the odd situation. Um, you know, Barbara Walters said on The View, why is he so adamant about suing uh, if this really happened? You know, the credibility uh, when you're looking for money uh, is out there. And uh, that's what a lot of people seem to think. Um, uh, his credibility is very low when it comes to uh, these allegations. Um, from what you went over from uh, A to Z. So uh, we have some uh, questions uh, from the fans. Uh, let me start from uh, Twitter at S A N E M J fan. S, can you discuss how? You were offered a book deal after the trial, but only if you would uh, lie and say Michael was guilty. Is this true? And do you think you will ever have a book deal? That's their question. Well, I was told that the publishing industry uh, did not care for Michael Jackson and didn't want a book about why he was innocent. That's what I was told. I had a one of the top agents in New York. She'd represented uh, other celebrity types uh, in their book deals. Uh, initially, she thought that they would definitely want a book uh, where it would be explained how he was acquitted. But she went to nine major publishers, and they all did not want a book on why Michael Jackson was innocent. Someone did want to do a book about me, about my life, as opposed to just the Michael Jackson trial. I turned that down. And the answer to the second question is, yes, I'm you know, slowly uh, and carefully writing a book about uh, my experiences with the justice system and the media. I'm taking my time. I'm doing it with a, another journalist. Uh, no timetable. Uh, I want it to be truthful and careful, and it'll come out at the right time. Okay, uh, in the chat, we have Jay Raskin, who asks, did Tom Mesereau know that Andrea Constant wrote an article where she compared herself to Martin Luther King in relationships to the gay and uh, transsexual movement? I guess you're you're Uh, aware of that. I I was not aware of that. Uh, And again, you know, I'm not here to trash anybody or disparage anybody. I'm saying that this man 
regardless of whether you like them or don't like them or whatever you think about them, have the right to a fair trial like every American citizen does. And he didn't get one. He didn't get one because of politics. He didn't get one because of celebrity. He didn't get one because people are politically ambitious and wanted to use this case as a platform to advance their careers. And I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, uh, you know, we have unfair trials. I mean, the Michael Jackson situation looked hopeless. Nobody gave me a chance in that one. My my colleagues were telling me, don't take the case because you can't win it. And the rest of your life, anywhere you go in the world, people are going to say, you know, you sent Michael Jackson to prison. It's going to kill your career. I knew some other well-known criminal lawyers who told me they wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole. And I just said to myself, this is who I am. I fight for justice. I fight against odds. And Criminal defense lawyers make the system work, and the good ones don't cherry-pick their cases. They don't just you know, sit back and say, is this going to be good for my career or not? They fight for justice because that's who they are. And, um, but the problem is you know, there are prosecutors and there are police and there are government agents, local, state, and federal, who look at celebrity cases as a vehicle to promote themselves, to get a hit, to get ahead, to write books, to be interviewed, whatever it is. And we have to right. guard against that because I, I think it's getting worse and worse with the enormously competitive media we have. And not only is our media outlets enormously competitive, but their respect for the truth and for fact, factual accuracy constantly diminishes. I mean, look at look at the print media that, you, you know, the L.A. Times years ago, three or four people would fact check an article before it went out. Now there's one person that does it. And, right. you know, the you know, the media is is gradually, you know, losing any semblance of respectability for accuracy with their facts. It's like people want to get the shocking story out first. They want to get whatever will sell out there first. Um, you know, journalistic ethics seem to be diminishing as the enormously competitive industry uh, gets more competitive. So, um, you know, I used to I used to look at CNN years ago as a news source, and then I yes. began to see so many inaccuracies, and now it's just entertainment, as far as I can see. <laughs> you know. Yes. Uh, I, I'm very upset with that. I mean, I think the last election just sent CNN into a tailspin of, of just, oh my. it's entertainment. It's not newscasting. I don't know how to explain it. <laughs> it's not just CNN, by the way. I mean, all the networks seem to, you know, the, the, the respect for journalistic ethics and, and, and factual accuracy seems to diminish as things get more competitive. Oh yeah. There's uh, no question about that. And, uh, there were still some good ones, uh, I, I believe, but a uh, good handful of, uh, like you said, the business, uh, shock value, uh, now with the internet especially, uh, that I'm sure adds a lot to the whole uh, process of uh, some of these people. But uh, let's carry on. Let's uh, try some phone calls. Let's go to uh, area code 902 and uh, do me a favor please state your name and where you're calling from you're on the phone with uh, you'll, you'll be on the phone in a second with Tom Mesro 
Oh, hello. My name is Marcella, and I'm calling from Canada. Good evening. Hi. Yeah. Hi. Um, it's a great pleasure to talk to the host of the program, and of course, Mr. Mesero, it's um, an absolute privilege and an honor to speak to you. Thank you. It is Thank you. Um, it's a, a great honor. I respect your work with the underprivileged and your dedication to the legal needs of those uh, underprivileged people. And uh, as a Michael Jackson fan, a lifelong one, I'm 48, and I've uh, heard his music and been a fan of his since I was seven, I will, of course, be uh, eternally grateful to you for your efforts in bringing out the truth about this remarkable man. Uh, He was treated so unfairly for so long, as far as I'm concerned. So you have been, I think, a real fortress of, of solace almost for him when he was going through probably the most troubled period of his life. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Appreciate your comments. Um, oh, you're quite welcome, sir. Um, anyway, I, I don't want to ramble too long. I'm, I'm just really in awe being able to talk to you. Uh, but I'll premise my question by saying um, I have a, a, a PhD in political science. I work in that particular field. Uh, and the reason I mention this is because it seems that when someone uh, tries to defend uh, Michael Jackson or speak in his favor, the implication is that it must be someone who is a crazed fan of some kind who will justify every action of his because they're uh, irrationally blinded by idolatry of some kind. Um, I'm I'm not that uh, blinded, nor am I irrational, um, but I'm also not easily propagandized, and I'm I'm quite impressed with your comments about the media because I found that the media was dreadfully unfair to Michael Jackson, uh, and it, uh, I think, still is uh, in many respects, even after his death. Um, I even left social media for two years because I really couldn't uh, cope with the depth of ignorance that was fed by the media. Um, And given how strenuously uh, you, sir, Mr. Mesereau, have always defended Michael Jackson, um, I wonder... um, if I could ask you just a, a couple of questions with regards to his behavior during the trial, which has always intrigued me. Well, you talked about his disbelief uh, in terms of being implicated in these kinds of um, allegations that were uh, brought forward against him. I wonder, did he ever talk to you about how distasteful um these allegations were? Did he ever talk to you about how much they were actually hurting him on an emotional level? Um, How did he behave when people were testifying against him during this particular trial? Well, remember how hideous these charges were because a lot of people have forgotten how Mm -hmm. atrocious uh, and diabolical these charges were. I mean, I remember... At one point, I was on O'Reilly, which I had avoided going on after the trial. (laughs) Then a number of years later, I was on it. And Bill O'Reilly said, well, the Jackson case was nothing like the Sandusky case. And I said, wait a second. Do you really know what the charges were? They charged him with conspiring with other criminals to Mm -hmm. falsely imprison a family. Uh, They charged him with conspiring to abduct children. 
and conspiring to commit extortion. They also said that he took a cancer-stricken child and plied that child with alcohol to prepare him to be molested. I mean, what could yeah. be more diabolical than that? In fact, um, yeah, indeed. So they're, they're charging him with masterminding a criminal conspiracy to abduct children and falsely imprison a family uh, and extort the children and extort the family. And they're also charging him with taking advantage of a little child with cancer by essentially getting the child intoxicated to prepare the child for sexual gratification. I mean, these were horrendous, awful charges. So yeah. you can imagine what a sensitive uh, person like Michael Jackson, and when I say sensitive, he was a creative genius. He, he saw things we don't see. He felt things we don't feel. He imagined things we don't imagine. He was a creative genius and a very, very sensitive person. Uh, who just couldn't believe he was sitting there being subjected to this kind of accusation um, or these kinds of accusations. So, you know, he didn't have to tell me, I can't stand this. You just look at him, you know, he was losing weight. He was not sleeping. He was, he would, he would look at me after a day in in trial dumbfounded. He would look Mm -hmm. like he just couldn't imagine he was even in this place. And then we would have breaks, you know, upstairs in the, in the, in the courthouse. There was a special room uh, for the family. Mm-hmm. And, and he would just be dumbfounded that people were saying these things. Um, I don't know how it's to explain a, it any more than that. He always was adamant. He never molested. Pardon me? Uh, oh, I just said you've been very eloquent. You've actually explained it quite um, – that's exactly what I was looking for. Um, I, I've always been interested in trying to understand – how he was feeling through the whole thing, because we know about the technicalities. Um, and again, to me, you are a paladin of justice, and I, I will always see you that way. Um, but I've, I've been Thank interested you. in your, it's, it's well-deserved. Um, but I've always been interested in how he was actually feeling during the, during the trial, because you could see that he was suffering, but... Um, you know, these personal um, reflections that he might have shared with you are of interest to me. Well, I mean, look, he was always adamant that he was innocent, that he had never done anything like this, that he would never do anything like this. I mean, there is that tape where he says, I'll slip my wrist before I hurt a child. Um, yes, I do. <laughs> and, and that's how he felt. That's how he yeah. felt. So for for him to be sitting there being told that this is what you are, you're a, essentially a, like a mafia boss organizing a criminal conspiracy to abduct children, to falsely imprison a family, to extort mm-hmm. them. And by the way, you're also doing these other horrifically insensitive, diabolical things. I mean, you can imagine. I think there was utter disbelief at first. Mm-hmm. I think he was hoping it would just go away through mm-hmm. some legal you know, strategy. And right. then when he realized it wouldn't, he had to sit there and watch people try to prove this. I think he was dumbfounded. And I don't think he ever recovered from it emotionally or physically. I would agree. I don't think he ever did. I think um, since 1993, he was um, somewhat stunned uh, at the fact that people could accuse him of such things. But um, at the end of 2005, I think he was just utterly, um, well, let's say saddened, for lack of a better yeah. word really destroyed, you know, in my Uh opinion. 
you know, I remember he, I, I told him uh, to leave Neverland, and there was a little hesitation at first. You know, people around him were calling me, do you have information? Something else is going to happen. I said, I don't need information that something else is going to happen. I've watched these prosecutors. I've watched these police. They are so humiliated, you know, mm-hmm. that they lost this. They feel that they've mm-hmm. been embarrassed before the whole world. They're going to be gunning for you. They're going to you know, they're going to use any pretense to come after you. And according to one journalist I talked to later on, uh, Snedden was trying to put another case together against him for prescription drug illegalities. Um, but Michael, I was told that because Michael had moved to the Middle East at that point, they decided to just, you know, not pursue it. But Michael loved Neverland. This was his place for peace, for for, for kindness, for for creativity, for, you know, for just gazing at nature and, and, and all of its, you know, wonderful aspects. The sky, I mean, you had to be at Neverland at night like I was when, when crowds and people weren't there. He had strategically put little lights at various mm-hmm. branches, you know, through, around Neverland. Uh, he played <laughs> Disney-like music, yeah. you know, and... You would walk outside and you would hear this this music and you would look at these lights and you would look at the sky and the moon and the stars and the beauty of what he had created. It was just his his mecca, his haven, you know, Mm -hmm. to get away from pressure, to get away from all kinds of stress uh, and to and to be creative. Um, And and, and this was all destroyed by this. and he never really, I think, found a home after it. He went to the Middle East, and then he, that didn't work after about nine months. He went to Ireland. He went to England. He thought about France. He finally ended up in Las Vegas. And then he came back to Los Angeles, uh, come back, and then, of course, passed away. So I think poor Michael was a little bit like a rolling stone, you know, after, he, after this trial. I, I just think it, it, it devastated him in, in many ways. And thanks so much for the call. Let's go up to Huntington Beach, California, and say hello to Sarah. She joined us live. Uh, Sarah, how are you? And welcome to King Jordan Radio. You're live with Tom Mesereau. Hi, Jordan. Thank you for taking my call. And hello, Mr. Mesereau. Um, Hi, Sarah. I I apologize because I tuned in um, late, so I don't know if my question has already been covered or not, but just, just go ahead and... Ignore me if it has been. Um, Regarding Bill Cosby's trial, I was um, very much interested in um, the conflict of interest that was brought in front of the judge regarding his wife and her involvement in many women's groups. I think that's a very, very simplified um, description of what was going on. So do you think that that could be an appellate issue? And um, the other question I had was, although with Michael Jackson, you, you got the acquittal and, and, um, and, and wholeheartedly congratulations, um, not, not because, um, it, you know, Wikipedia is going to say that in the first three lines after your name, I just say, wonderful, wonderful that what you did for Michael Jackson, um, and and for Mr. Cosby, well, okay, so there was not an acquittal, but mentally and physically, um, and not taking the 
the verdict into consideration, which I don't know if you can or not, but which one truly had a more mental and physical toll on you? Good question. Well, the, the, I mean, that, that, that's difficult to answer because you've got a life in your hands. Uh, each case is different, and to your client, their case is the most important case. People will say to me sometimes, ask me the question, what is the biggest case of your career? And I, my response is, to anyone I represent, their case is the biggest case, okay? Mm-hmm. Because we, deal, we, we have lives in our hands. We're dealing with their freedom and reputation. Um, now, the, the Bill Cosby trial was a couple of weeks. The Michael Jackson trial was five months. Mm-hmm. So it was a much mm-hmm. longer, longer trial. But they both were, you know, high stakes, uh, both had a lot of media pressure surrounding them and Mm -hmm. you know lives are in your hands and I don't place one life as better or bigger or greater than any other life I don't care whether you're rich or poor whether you're famous or no one ever heard of who you are Uh, you are a person entitled to dignity and value and fairness in our system well especially fairness yeah well our system is not supposed to treat anyone differently Right. And also because of the fact that those five women, I think it was five, they were allowed to testify with their remembered experiences with Bill Cosby. Um, Can you please explain also besides the conflict of interest with the judge, but could you also explain if he was never um, convicted of those things, why is it that it was allowed to be brought up in court? Because wouldn't it have been so prejudicial against him? Well, first of all, uh, about the judge. Uh, we did make a motion and ask the judge to recuse himself. That's the way it's done in Pennsylvania. And the, the issues were not just uh, about his wife. His wife is a highly respected uh, counselor of abuse victims, highly regarded has published articles, um, mm. and she had actually arranged for a contribution to be made, a financial contribution to one of the groups that, uh, that had scheduled a protest in front of the courthouse. So oh. we, asked, we asked that he recuse himself on that basis, but there's a, there's a longer history behind this. I mean, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the, when the alleged victim reported that she had been assaulted. The then existing district attorney had been elected district attorney in a bitter battle with his opponent who turned out to be our judge. Okay. So the prior district attorney had rejected the case and he had entered into an agreement with Mr. Cosby's lawyers not to prosecute him. And he told Mr. Cosby's prosecutors they had, he had no Fifth Amendment privilege not to testify in the civil case because there would be no prosecution. Right. Now, I remember, remember that. Remember, yeah. So his bitter opponent, his bitter defeated opponent, turns out to be our trial judge. So what happens? The DA then runs a second time and loses to a friend of the judge. He loses to someone who becomes the DA and who, during the political race, advertise on TV, if elected, I will go after Bill Cosby. He gets elected. He rejects the agreement. The defense files a motion to throw out the 
criminal complaint because the DA's office had agreed not to prosecute him, and he had relied on that agreement. A hearing is held. The former, the prior DA who entered in the agreement says, I entered into an agreement with him. I agreed not to prosecute him. His old political opponent, the current trial judge, rules he's not credible. And was there also a problem because that was there was no documentation? There was nothing in writing regarding that they um, said, agreement? They said it was not done in writing, but the DA did testify under oath that he entered into that agreement. Now, so when that a, didn't when matter county, to the judge? Didn't matter to him, apparently. Uh, well, I, I won't say what I'd like to say, but nevertheless. Mm. Um, uh, so... <laughs> There, there, there was that potential conflict of interest. Um, there was the fact that uh, that he sided with the current DA and against his old opponent. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was that problem, and there was the problem with, you know, his wife's career, which we thought created a uh, a serious conflict. Will that be an appellate issue? Yes, it will. But there's so many other appellate issues. Uh, as I said earlier, when we were selecting a jury, one rejected juror contacted us and said she'd heard another juror say he's guilty and deliberations won't take very long. She mm. then came in and testified under oath that that juror had said that. The judge refused to dismiss that juror, and he ended up on the jury. There's wow. that issue. There's the five women you talked about. In the first trial, which ended up a hung jury, he allowed one other woman to testify. In the retrial, he upped the number to five and wouldn't give any reason. Um, and you're right, you know, the, none of these five women had brought cases against Bill Cosby. Um, they hadn't gone to the criminal authorities. They hadn't filed civil suits in, in a timely way. Uh, and some of them were 30 years or more old. And so, nothing could be corroborated. Well, that's the problem. How do you investigate something right. that allegedly happened 30 years ago? Right, uh, how do right. you do that? Um, so it, it, the case was filled with unfairness, and there, there are other things that went on. Um, so there, were, there will be a long list of appellate issues for whoever files the appeal. I don't, I won't, I'm not longer on the defense team, and I don't do appellate work anyway. Mm-hmm. But there will be a lengthy list of very serious issues, and not to mention the fact the case wasn't even filed on time. We had all yeah, I remember that. So, I do remember that yeah. also. Judge wouldn't have wow. a hearing on that issue, wouldn't take evidence on the issue, wouldn't rule on the issue, said it's up to the jury. Let them decide. Mm. Wow. Well, I appreciate you talking to me, and thank you for um, going all of those interesting facts. And, Jordan, thank you. I'm so glad you're back, and I hope all is well. Mm. And I look forward to your next show and, and talking to you. And you have a good night, Mr. Mesereau. And um, everyone needs a fair trial and Everyone needs a good defense attorney. Well, thank thanks for that wonderful call. Okay. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Let's go to 504. Let's just limit it to one question. Uh, 504, please state your name and where you're calling from. It's your turn. You're uh, live. Good evening. Yes. Yes. Um, this, my name is Gavin. I'm calling from New Orleans. How are you doing this evening, King Jordan, uh, Mr. Mesereau? Hi, Gavin. Okay, Good Gavin. Thank you. I, I, I am an attorney out here in Louisiana. Um, I just want to first off thank Mr. Mesereau. I do admire him, the work that he's done, uh, especially in the Michael Jackson case and now with Bill Cosby. 
Um, I know my time is limited, so I'll just answer an important question that I was thinking about. What, uh, Mr. Mesro, could citizens do as far as the Cosby case is concerned? Because I considered it to be a travesty of injustice, and I really feel that some type of complaint from the bar should be leveled against Mr. Steele because he, to me, violated uh, ethical rules with regards to his campaigning on getting Mr. Cosby. That tampers a jury pool when a prosecutor can actually get up and do a campaign ad. And attorneys, as you know, have to be very careful with their advertisement. So I don't know how this was even allowed that he could campaign on getting Mr. Cosby. And that's a four, it, it creates a Sixth Amendment issue, a right to a fair and impartial trial. It also uh, is a 14th Amendment issue. Uh, so what can citizens do in this case uh, with regards to their anger towards, uh, not their anger, but to make a difference? Well, I mean, we live in a democracy. Um, we can, to the judge, you can write to politicians who are responsible for making the laws. You can contract, contact Andrew Wyatt, W-Y-A-T-T, uh, in Alabama, who was Mr. Cosby's publicist, uh, who I know has been dealing with the media on these issues. Uh, my understanding is there is a growing social media movement uh, that Mr. Wyatt knows about. I, I don't uh, know very much about it. Uh, that concerns you know, voicing people's opinions about the unfairness of the trial and the fact that whether you yes. like Mr. Cosby or don't like him, he's an American citizen. He was entitled to fundamental fairness, equal protection, due process. All the things our Constitution is supposed to protect uh, that were not protected in the trial. Um, you know, uh, I think the more a public campaign gets organized uh, and gets moving about this unfair trial, whether it be the Pennsylvania legislature, the trial judge, um, uh, or any other judges you choose to write to or politicians you choose to write to, I think this is what happens in democracy. Um, right. We have various lawful ways to protest what we think is injustice and unfairness. And um, I commend you for uh, your concerns about this, because as far as I'm concerned, uh, everything you've said is uh, – is right on. This was really a travesty. Um, yes, and I have, I'm sorry, I have sent letters to, just to let you know, uh, to the Judicial Committee. I sent one certified today. I sent the letter previously, uh, you know, that there'd be some type of investigation into both uh, Judge O'Neill and uh, DA Kevin Steele, because if this can happen to a man like Bill Cosby, who you know, what you said earlier about the monies he's donated. I think of, as a young black man, the fact that this man donated all of his money to black charities and to historical black colleges and universities. When he would go on his TV show, he would wear a Dillard sweater or a Xavier sweater. And it's saddening to see uh, the state that our justice system is in and what had been done to him, regardless of whether you like him or not. Uh, I felt he didn't get a fair shot. Well, you're absolutely correct. It's the most unfair trial in my career, and I've tried all kinds of cases in my career, white-collar cases in federal court, non-white-collar cases in state court, 
uh, white-collar cases in state court. I've tried administrative trials before administrative tribunals like medical boards. I've never seen anything to equal this. Uh, I've been going to, to your part of the country, Alabama, for the last 20 years doing a pro bono homicide case, many of them death penalty cases. Um, I did one in Mississippi. I've never seen anything like this. Uh, wow. It is the most unfair trial I've ever seen. And I don't know if you were listening at the beginning of the telecast, but as a lawyer, you know that a prosecutor can't personally vouch for their position in a closing argument. This prosecutor looked at the jury and said, where is the effect? I investigated this all myself. And then when I objected, that was personal vouching. He looked at the jury and said, what's he worried about? That kind of stuff went on. Um, wow. It was like, yeah, I mean, it's one one after another, after another, after another. The judge cutting off defense cross-examination, allowing prosecutors to cross-examine, you know, to whatever extent they wanted. Uh, it just is an absolute disgrace what happened in that courtroom. And somebody's got to do something about it. And unfortunately, in the meantime, an 81-year-old celebrity who's blind is uh, about to be sentenced to prison uh, unless this judge has some any empathy at all and lets him out pending appeal on bond, which I hope he does. I hope so, too. And um, another thing that I learned when I was listening to uh, you on another TV show, uh, radio show with uh, your private investigator, you had stated Mm -hmm. one of the accusers stated something to the effect, you remember me, Mr. Cosby, which is a Fifth Amendment issue because Mr. Cosby does not have to answer anything. And she's saying this in lieu of the jury. And sure. The judge allowed it to go on. And then another uh, another one of the five, what we call 404B witnesses, said, uh, called him a serial rapist, and the judge wouldn't grant him a trial. Right. And this, Mr. Cosby's not on trial for rape. So when they say all of this, this is prejudicial. Mm-hmm. It's, it's You're like absolutely the, uh, correct. What, right. What, like with the Tupac Shakur case, Tupac was not convicted for rape. A lot of people think that he was convicted for a battery. And Mm -hmm. this is what Mr. Cosby has is they convicted him on an assault charge and it's not a rape charge. And people keep calling him a rapist. And I don't think anybody has even read the facts of the case. Uh, I don't think that anybody has even paid attention to uh, some of the accusers. I know you had Janice Dickerson on there who admitted she lied. Uh, you know, her testimony should have never even been considered. Well, you know, I've said this throughout this interview. It was the most unfair trial in my career, and I'll say it again. I've never seen anything like it. Thank you so much for the call. Thank you. Great talking to you. Okay, we got just two more, and then we'll let you go, Tom. Let's go to San Diego. Thank you. And say hello to uh, Mark. You're live on the radio with uh, Tom Mesereau, Mark, from San Diego, California. Hello? You with? Yes, Mark, are you with us? Okay, let's try. Okay, let's go out to 512. Uh, you're live with Tom Mesereau. Uh, yes, hi. Uh, thank you, Jordan, for taking my call. My name is Nicole Lewis. Sure. I'm calling out of Austin, Texas. Uh, Mr. Mesereau, it is a pleasure uh, to have you on tonight. 
Um, I actually attended the Cosby trial for a few days. I was there. I saw you. I saw your closing argument. And for the life of me, I don't know what that jury was thinking. Um, In my personal opinion, you won that case. Um, And do you feel that the mass mainstream media learned from the Michael Jackson trial? Because at first it started out with one woman, then five women, then 20, then 60. Do you feel that the media um, was a part of creating this? Because it's like they learned from Michael's trial. I'm a huge fan of Michael as well. And I feel like they took from that trial and they magnified it. They were calling him rapist and all this stuff. I feel like the media, if this were anywhere else, uh, Cosby's trial would have been thrown out. I don't think there would have been anything. I feel like the media should be on trial for this. Well, well, I agree? agree with you. I think the I think the media should have been on trial in both instances. But you know, the mm-hmm. level of manipulation and malice, in, that in my opinion preceded the Cosby trial, was just uh, just outrageous. Um, you know, the media is interested in one thing: ratings and revenue. Okay, they both go together. Um, they exactly. like shock value. They like to see celebrities go sky high and then just splatter. You know, they mm-hmm. I just re, I, as I said earlier in the telecast, I'll never forget when the last not guilty came down the Jackson case. I hugged Michael and, and looked at where the media was in the courtroom. And I'd seen them come in earlier with all big smiles on their face and a glow in their eyes. And this is going to be the most exciting mm-hmm. day. And when the last not guilty came down, they all looked dejected, demoralized, depressed. You know, they just moped mm-hmm. out of the out of the courtroom. You know, their day had been ruined. They they wanted to see the biggest celebrity in the world, you know, get utterly de- demolished. It makes for a great story, and I think mm-hmm. that's what they were gunning for with Bill Cosby, and and I think they were maneuvering and manipulating any way they could, pinion to get it. Did you see any yes, stories also- about his? Don- did, did you see any stories before the trial about him donating? One to two hundred million dollars to charities, all the schools he saved from financial ruin, people he would mm-hmm. hear about and then pay for their college education, always insisting they maintain a certain grade level. Um, mm-hmm. uh, all of the people he tried to help, families, schools, social organizations. I mean, nobody wanted to talk about that. Not at all. Not at all. Um, because one one day when you were um, cross-examining Andrea Constant, I saw this for myself. I was sitting next to a reporter. Um, I believe she was with NBC. I won't say her name. But I noticed when the prosecution was doing their thing, she's just writing away. She's just writing, writing, writing. And then when I look over and you're getting ready to cross-examine uh, Mrs. Constant, suddenly her pen doesn't work. So these are the things that the folks you know out there who just – you know, are sheep and just believe this stuff, they don't know. So it mm-hmm. angers me, and we are a part of this campaign. We've been trying to push the Bill Cosby is Innocent campaign. We're all on social media. I've been doing videos on YouTube about it because it was utterly disgusting. What's the website? Um, Why don't believe- you uh, tell the, uh, our audience the website where they can find these uh, groups on uh, okay. social media? Okay, we have uh, a page on Facebook called Bill Cosby is Innocent. Uh, there is BillCosbyIsInnocent.com. 
um, Bill Cosby is Innocent okay. on Instagram and Twitter. We've been finding interviews with these ladies lying. I will say it. I know Mr. Mesro won't say it. We've been finding interviews. I've been finding interviews where they are saying two, three, four different things, and no one is checking these things. This man was lynched, period. He was lynched. I'm angry about it. A lot of people are angry about it, and we want to do something. And it's frustrating because many people have been brainwashed by this whole ordeal for nearly four years. It's disgusting. I felt like they saw what they did to Michael, and they just hijacked it and said, okay, we're going to perfect this to where we're going to see somebody go down. And I believe Bill Cosby was that target. Absolutely, 100%. And Mr. Mesereau, thank you for all that you've done. Um, regardless if they're famous or not, thank you for uh, believing in justice and trying to get justice for those who you know, deserve it. And I'm sorry that you were railroaded. Totally well, thank you very much for your thank you very much for your comments and uh, best of luck to you. Thanks for the call. Absolutely. Let's try Mark from California. See if he's here. Mark, are you are you with us? Okay, that'll 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 wrap this uh, up. Thank you, Tom, so much for coming on. Uh, you gave the uh, audience uh, a great education in law as you always do. Actually, had a question here. Uh, it's kind of humorous, but uh, I'll ask it anyway. Would you consider running for president in 2020? Uh, somebody asked in the chat. <laughs> no, I'm not a politician. Uh, I don't want to run for office. Uh, I'm not a political person. I just uh, do what I do, and that's enough. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And finally, uh, you went to Joe Jackson's uh, memorial. Uh, anything you could uh, share with us uh, about that? Yes, you know, you know, you know, the Joe Jackson I knew was a very, very proud, loving father. He was so proud of his family, so proud of where they had come from and what they had accomplished. And I'll share this with uh, with the listeners. Uh, again, mm-hmm. back to the uh, the acquittals in the Michael Jackson case. Uh, the 14th not guilty comes down. Uh, I hug Michael. We hug our team. Randy comes up to me. He's teary-eyed. You know, we hug. Joe Jackson walks up to me with a big smile on his face, sticks his hand out and shakes my hand and says, you're almost as good as me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that, uh, that was Joe. And uh, how old was he? Uh, <laughs> Uh, He was in his late 80s But but I mean, you know, a lot of people have knocked him uh, And I got to tell you, the Joe Jackson I knew Was so proud of his family Loved them to death So proud of of what all of his kids had accomplished in life And um, I have only nice things to say about the Joe Jackson I knew Yes, and uh, I must tell you, you're a wonderful guest, very educated. Uh, uh, a lot of people were uh, mark, bookmarked us uh, when we agreed to do the interview. Uh, and you don't know what it means uh, for me to have somebody of your caliber uh, come on the program uh, like you've been doing for the past uh, half a decade. So I really want to uh, appreciate that and tell you that. Well, thank you very much. It's always an honor and privilege to be on your show. Uh, you're a real professional and uh, wish you the best. 
and uh, all your listeners the best. Thank you so much. Okay, Tom. Have a great rest of your summer, and we'll speak soon. You too. Thank you. That was the legendary, iconic Tom Mesero. Uh, so, uh, very productive show, as I said. Uh, he made a lot of great points, uh, whether you agree, whether you don't like Bill Cosby, or whether you love Bill Cosby. Tom made a great point. Uh, it's like going into a boxing match when there's five years against one. Basically, this is what happened, uh, according to Tom Mesereau and uh, most people that I spoke to. Um, very unfair, to say the least. Uh, no matter who you are on this planet, one thing you uh, are deserving is a fair trial. Um, and uh, hopefully the justice system will work in in uh, due process with the appeals. So we'll uh, stay with the, uh, with that. Also, the Michael Jackson and uh, Trayvon, uh, Mike, uh, very uh, educational uh, from Mr. Mesereau. And uh, let me also tell you that uh, season seven next month will feature the return of Joey Jackson. Joey Jackson will be here. Don't have an exact date. Stay tuned to... Uh, Facebook.com forward slash King Jordan Radio, King Jordan Radio on Instagram, King Jordan R-A-D, Twitter. Let me give a shout-out to Rita, Judy, Sharon, Maddie, Pager, uh, and all of the uh, listeners that uh, checked in tonight. So it's Whitney Houston's birthday tonight, and uh, I'm going to leave you with uh, one of my favorite songs from uh, Whitney Houston. And uh, we'll say goodnight, and we'll be back uh, next month with Joey Jackson. Uh, Stay tuned with social medias for that. Thanks a lot, everybody. Enjoy the rest of your summer. Good night. We'll speak to you next month. If I should stay. I would only be in your way, so I'll go, but I know I'll think of you every step of the way. And I will love you, will love you, you, my darling. Goodbye, please don't cry. We 
both know I'm not what you, you need. 